So check this out. I, I was reminded a couple days ago. I was in my office uh, Labor Day. I was laboring on Labor Day. Any of the rest of you guys? And uh, okay, three of us. Perfect. And uh, it's good to know that all of you guys took a took a day of rest. We got home from the lake. It was a rough day. And uh, I went up to the office and told Heidi, "Hey, I just need to I just need to spend some time reading and praying tonight, preparing for tonight." And uh, I, I go in my office and I, I turn the worship up as loud as it can possibly go in my office, which is very loud. Uh, the other guys in the office sometimes I'm sure get annoyed just because I like to crank it. You know, I'm a very volume-oriented individual, you know. And I experienced something that night. You see, I was reminded that a lot of times I separate when it comes to worship, like study and song. And I was reminded on Monday night as I opened my word and as I just began to prepare and ask God to speak about tonight, what happened was, is I experienced one of the, one of the greatest three hours of worship I've had in a long time. And it wasn't because I was in my office singing the entire time. It was because, like, my word was open and God was speaking and Him and I were just having this moment of communion. So I, I want to remind you tonight, as we open the word of God, that worship is not over. You know, that worship, in fact, my friends, is continuing. Yeah, we sang. And we said, to God be the glory. And now we open the word of God and say, to God be the glory. Amen? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter uh, 21. Jason brilliantly taught last week the, some prophetic red-letter words of Jesus talking about the fall of Jerusalem. For you and I, the fall of Jerusalem is so far removed, right? It's like a long, long time ago. Let me try to bring it in perspective for you, okay? When 9-11 happened in America, terrorists came and hit the Twin Towers. We had approximately 3,000 to 3,500 or so deaths in America. It was disastrous. It was a horrible day for America. If we all go all the way back to World War I, in World War I, America lost 117,000 troops. Disastrous. So many families, so many homes wrecked. In World War II, my friends, we lost 500,000 Americans. If you add all three of those numbers up, it doesn't even compare, my friends, to the number that Josephus says happened in the fall of Jerusalem. 1.1 or so million people died. The wars lasted years. The fall of Jerusalem lasted days and weeks. So can we begin to understand for a moment that when the temple falls and when Rome comes in and slaughters people, man, women, and child, that this is a disastrous event. We're so far removed. And the reality is Jesus said it would happen. And it did. Tonight, my friends, we make a shift. Tonight moves from the prophetic red-letter words of Jesus talking about the fall of Jerusalem to something Else, So open your Bibles to Luke. I hope you guys are there. Verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25 says this. You guys ready to dance? Let's do this. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's a picture of joy and bliss, right? No. All of a sudden, we've moved from talking about land and Jerusalem, the city, to talking about what? The sun and the moon and the stars, cosmic aspects, all of a sudden come into the picture. And not just that, before we were talking about land, and now we're talking about what? The world. 
until the prophetic red letter words of Jesus have moved from this, uh, just the fall of Jerusalem, now all of a sudden there's something that's going to happen all over the place. Now the first thing that he says is there are going to be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. It'd be interesting, isn't it? How many of you guys like falling stars? Any of you? Right? That's what they call them, falling stars? Okay, one person does, okay. Good, this, this will really connect then with you. Perfect. Um, in Matthew, in the parallel story of this, he gives us a little bit better of a picture. So can you put this, look at this. Uh, in verse 29 of chapter 24, immediately after the, the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So Matthew, in the parallel account of this story, adds a little bit more detail. There will be cosmic signs of whatever it is that Jesus is getting ready to tell us is going to happen. He's going to talk about the return of himself. And we live in a generation, don't we, that gets so easily entangled and grabs on to verses like this, don't they? There are many in our culture, for this passage, they're like, yes, I see the word signs, you know? And so for many of our culture, they, when, when, they, when you start talking about eschatology or the end times, it's all about the signs, isn't it? It's like, hey, hey, did you guys hear that that one creek flooded? I bet Jesus is coming back, you know? Or did, did you, you know, all of these random things that people use. The signs in this passage are a means to point us to the Savior. We live in a culture that so wants to grasp on to all of the phrases and all of the usages of signs. Miracles, my friends, in the Scripture is not the focal point of the miracle itself. The focal point is for us to turn to the one who performed the miracle, to turn to the one who's doing the signs, to turn to the one who created all of this. So this entire passage sums up the way we should see the entire view of the Scripture when it comes to the end times and the return of Jesus, and that's that we should not focus on the signs, but on the Savior. Our focus and our eyes and our heart should not be attentive to all of the riffraff that's going on. Instead, we should await and focus on the Savior. And when that happens, we do not get distracted. Y2K? Much, you know? It's like, hey, why, I, I never even really understood what that was, you know? You just kept hearing about it on the news, like, we're all going to die and computers are going to become humans. It's going to be crazy, you know? And all the while, I'm like, like, what is this, you know? First of all, we've talked about it before. If anyone says the end of the world is going to come, it's not coming because he says it'll come like a thief, you know? So anytime that someone says, hey, the world's going to end next year, I'm like, well, great. No, it's not. You know what I mean? He's not coming back because you bozo just said it's going to, it's going to happen, you know? It's, it's not going to happen. But can you understand with me? Chaos, right? Jesus said that the seas are going to roar and toss. And it's an Old Testament prophetic way of talking about chaos. The world will be in chaos. And some of you are like, yeah, it is right now. Like, how is this any different? And we'll keep wrestling with that idea. Verse 27 says this. At that time, I love this verse. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory, with dunamis and doxa, power and glory. A few questions in this verse, eh? First of all, who's the they? And they will see. 
the Son of Man, coming in a cloud. Who is the they? Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says that all will see the return of Christ. We see even an add-on to that passage in Philippians chapter 2 that says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So the they is everyone. They will all see. Now let's focus on the cloud a bit, shall we? Because it's easy to get Care Bear here, isn't it? You know? You guys like the Care Bears? Did you grow up with the... Yeah, Grumpy Bear and Leprechaun Bear. That probably wasn't even a bear. I don't know, right? All these bears, and you see them like hopping around the clouds. And so it's easy in this moment to get Care Bear with it. Like you picture Jesus, the American Jesus, like hopping down on the, like the stair cloud, you know, like, Hey, everybody, you know? No, no, no. No, no, no. We can't get confused. But at the same time, there's a literal idea to this idea of Him coming in a cloud. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus raises from the dead and He ascends to heaven, Scripture says that two men dressed in white come down to, and talk to the apostles, and they're freaking out a little bit, and He says, listen, when He returns, it's going to be just like you see right now. Savior up in the clouds and the Savior to return in the clouds. And so the idea that the Son of Man will return in the clouds, let me, let me tell you something, there will be no mistaking when it happens. There will be no question when it occurs. There will be no opportunity for you and I to walk around and say, well, what, what's, what's happening? No, no, no. We will know. All will know, for all will see. But there's a huge other phrase in this verse, isn't it? What does it say? What does it call Jesus? The Son of what? The Son of... The Son of Man. Interesting phrase, isn't it? We better define it. We better understand it. The phrase originates with the great prophet Ezekiel, who is often called the Son of Man because of his understanding of, of the fall of Jerusalem, his prophetic words even about the end times. Granted, it was lowercase Son of Man, and so this idea of the Son of Man comes up way back in the prophet Ezekiel, but... It escalates when Jesus comes on the scene. In Luke chapter 5, the first mention of 25 in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Eighty times or so in the Gospels that He's referred to as the Son of Man. And unless He's being asked a question, it's always Himself referring to Himself as the Son of Man. This is a Messianic title. The Son of Man will come back in a cloud with great dunamis and doxa, power and glory, power so that we can see His authority, so that we can see by His hand He's returning. It's not by chance. He will return when He wants because He's in, he's in control of it. He's in charge of it. Now, glory. For me, that's a weird word. Doxa, right? It's like, what, what does glory mean? Kind of throw it around in our terminology. I think this passage will help us. I'll put up the Corinthians passage. Uh, you can't see that one. Let's look at this one. Second Corinthians chapter 3 says this, verse 13. We are not like Moses. I think this is going to help us. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Now, this passage is talking about when Moses goes up and he asks to see the glory of God. What happens? God passes by, shows Moses his backside, and Moses literally has to veil his face so that like, he'll even be able to talk to people when he comes off the mountain because the glory is just shining out of his face. Verse 14. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. Hello, Tasty, right? When the Old Covenant is read, 
the old law, which separated us from God by our lack of ability to do it, when that law is read, the veil still covers. It has not been removed because only in what? Only in Christ is it taken away. Only in the Son of Man is it removed. Can I, yeah? Right? Verse 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone, uh, but, but where, when any, uh, when, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now this is a key concept in understanding glory. When anyone turns to Him, the veil is taken away. What does that mean? Uh, this next uh, passage, verse 17, tells us, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Remember the song? Where the Spirit of the Lord... I won't sing, sorry. Right? There is freedom, verse 18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with the ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Wordy there at the end, let me explain. We oftentimes separate glory from God. There was God, and then because He was God, there was glory. Like all of a sudden there were like 80 million lights surrounding Him, right? It was like, oh, there's God. Well, we, must, we better set up a peripheral of lights. No, no, no. God and glory are synonymous. They are one. Now the Scripture says, when anyone turns to Christ because He is Spirit, the Spirit now resides in us. And what? We are to be a reflection of that glory because the veil has been taken away. And why and how are we to be a reflection? So that people will know who is in control. And that when we boast, we boast in the Lord. And so the glory of Christ, my friends, by the Spirit of Christ, is resonating out of each of us that have been blood-bought and saved by the person of Christ. And so as we reflect it, then we're reflecting the glory of Christ. How about today? Did you reflect some glory of Jesus? At every turn, were you like to the glory of God? At every moment, every passing moment, everything like Jeremy was talking about, his Jetta, God rest, you know, yeah. As he was discussing that, he was able to give God the glory through that situation. Friends, how about you today? How quick were you as things went awry? Were you to get completely like just bogged down by the realities of life instead of to God be the glory? He's in control. The world needs to see us if we believe in the sovereignty of God. The world needs to see us reflecting the glory of God. How will we teach the sovereignty of God if we as Christians don't reflect it? How will we show people that He's in control if at every whim of the wind we're just getting flailed around? To teach and reflect the sovereignty of God, we must be constantly shouting, speaking, reflecting, praising to God be the glory. To God be the glory. So when he comes in dunamis and doxa. Can you guys get a picture of that? No, you can't. And amen, right? There's something to look forward to. Amen? There's something to wait for. When he comes in dunamis and doxa, it's go time, right? Yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Now, uh, in verse 28... This gets, this gets interesting here, my friends. Verse 28. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption 
is drawing near. Your. He's talking to the who at this point. Jason taught last week that Jesus turns to the disciples. So he's speaking to the disciples. Obviously he would know that the Bible would be written and we'd be reading this long, long, long down the road. But listen to this. All of a sudden in this verse we see that because your redemption is drawing near becomes a focus of Christ, which you and I should be asking, then what is redemption? Redemption is defined as this. The purchase back of something that had been lost by the payment of a ransom. The purchase back of something that had been lost by the payment of a ransom. Jesus says, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. You're being purchased back to God is near. So you can lift your head in confidence. Now, I think there's going to be only two reactions to the coming of Christ. I think there's only going to be two reactions. It's going to be amazement and confidence, or it's going to be surprise and shame. What do I mean by that? I mean when Christ comes, and for those of us who have been waiting for His return expectantly, then when He comes and we see Him in all of His power, in all of His glory, we will look up to the heavens and say, I've been waiting. Confidence. I've been waiting for this. My redemption is near. My redemption has come. I've been waiting for this moment. Here I am. And then that's coupled with amazement. So we'll fall prostrate on our face. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And we'll say, oh God, we have been waiting for our redemption. The other option is surprise. I, I, hold on. Like, no. Not, not right now. Like, you don't understand. Like, everything in the, no. This can't be. Like, I, friends, over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke, we've been told to be ready. We've been told that there's an urgent call. In your mind, you're quick to say, well, he was telling the disciples this, and it's been 2,000 years later. Yeah, you know why? Because there's a daily sense of urgency when it comes to our walk with Christ, whether you live 2,000 years ago or today. He'll come back on His time, and you and I should be thankful for that. Instead, many of us will be surprised. No, 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 no. Not right now. You don't understand. I just, I need to get... I need a... And it'll be too late. And so we'll cower. The same position of amazement will cower in shame. Because we know. Because shame and the glory of God, my friends, just don't mix. How about for you tonight? What would it be right now? If all of a sudden, like, you know, and we just knew... You, you tonight, right now, as you're sitting in this chair, would it be confidence? Would you rise and would you lift up your head and say, yeah, let's go. I've been waiting for you. I've been anticipating your return. Or would it be, no, 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 it can't, it can't be right now. I, just, I needed more time. I needed, we got to fix this. we got to, my friends, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to understand that it could be now, my friends. 
And this isn't a push to say, all right, so everyone... No, no, no. It's a push to say He's the Savior right now. He's the Savior tomorrow. He's the Savior the next day. So if He is the Savior now, then all i got to say is, what up? If He is the Savior right now, the great God of redemption, the great Christ of mercy, the great Savior of grace, if He is all of those things now, then what are we waiting for? Then why still sitting around in our complacent chairs? Come on, one more day of pornography. Just one more day. Then I'll get serious. Just one more day of indulging my sinful nature. Then I'll get serious and you know you've made that, you, you know you've made that commitment before. One more day and I'll, then I'll figure it out and I'll pray and repent. My friends, the gospel is alive right now. Verse 29 says this. He told them this parable. And I love this because, like, this is so intense. He's telling the disciples he's going to come back in a cloud, you know? And then all of a sudden he goes into a story. You know, he's like, well, hold that thought, right? Look at this. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when these things, uh, even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is what? Is near. Why is this a significant message for Luke? Because over and over and over, he's been talking about the kingdom of God nearing. He's been talking about the kingdom of God is now but a mustard seed compared to a full tree. In other words, we're experiencing the kingdom now, yes, but there is a kingdom that's coming as well. And so in this moment, the message is the kingdom of God is near. Now check this out. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, you guys remember the story? He sends out the 72, and I love it because when they come back, they're like, dude, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name, you know? And Jesus is like, really? I, didn't, I wasn't aware. That's good to hear, you know? And it's like, they're surprised by this, which I love. It shows their innocence. But he tells them this. When you go into villages and they don't accept you, He said, wipe the dust off your feet, but you must tell them one message. He could have said a lot of things. So they go into a village, and the village doesn't accept them, and what does Jesus say to say? Tell them that the kingdom of God is near. That's it. Wipe the dust off your feet, and you tell them that the kingdom of God is near. Why? Because that's the reality. It's the reality on you and I's level right here, right now, as we're experiencing the kingdom in our current state. And it's our reality because the kingdom of God every day in the fullness of it is coming, my friends. It's real. It's urgent. You tell them that the kingdom of God is near. The fullness of the doxa, the fullness of the glory, it is here. Verse 32. I tell you the truth. This generation Will, will, uh, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, what do you mean by all these things? Well, in the parable, what he's saying is, is look, in the summer, like the trees, when it's coming summer, they make leaves, right? This is a great parable because we all can understand it, right? Isn't this awesome? You're like, hey, I get this one, right? Summer comes, trees, they sprout leaves. It's great, you know, you love it. So you can tell that summer is coming, He's saying there, it's going to be obvious. There's no question. And so when he gets to verse, 30, uh, verse 32, he says this, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
problem. Eh? Are you guys reading the same verse I am? This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Daryl Bach, one of the commentators that Jason and I read in preparation, says this is one of the most controversial verses in the entire Gospel of Luke. Do you guys see the problem with it? This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. So how can you take this verse? At first glance, you could say, so the disciples' generation, which a generation is typically 40 years, the disciples' generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. What does that make Jesus out to be? Uh, one that doesn't understand prophecy. Because he's missed it. Because it, ha- it didn't happen in, in the disciples' time. So we have some issues here, right? Now, if you study and understand a little bit of the phrasing of generation here, the, the Greek word is genea. Now, genea can mean a period of time. It can also mean a race. So, many of us would say, okay, so if it was a race of people, then I guess it would be the who? The Jews. That the Jews, that race of people, won't pass away until all these things have happened. Problem is, Luke's a what? A Gentile writing to who? Theophilus, who's also a what? A Gentile. Have we seen a consistent message, the entire Gospel of Luke, that the Gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the... So it wouldn't seem likely, would it, that Luke would say that all these things will, won't happen until the Jewish... They're, they're going to be... No, no, no. He wouldn't write that. Because his entire message, this entire gospel, is Jesus came for the world. There's all kinds of theories. You get on Google, you're like, controversy with Luke chapter 21, verse, you know. There's all kinds of stuff that will pop up. Here's what I think is the most likely uh, way to, to understand this verse. It's that the generation that is alive when these things begin to happen, will not pass away. Now, you're like, well, that seems simple. Yeah, it does, right? And and I think that that's the most likely way to understand this verse. At the end of the day, I don't think verse 32 changes our salvation or our view of the gospel, but it does say and understand that there is going to be people experiencing these things, which is tremendous for our understanding. Verse 33. Heaven and earth... This is an awesome verse. Heaven and earth will pass away... But my words will never pass away. You're a disciple. And uh, you're two days or three days from watching Jesus or hearing about Jesus dying on a Roman execution stake. You've been with him for three years. You've seen him cast out demons. In fact, he's empowered you to do the same. You've watched Him bring the dead back to life. You've watched Him heal the blind man, Bartimaeus. I mean, you've seen incredible stuff. All three of the, of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this story right before or close to the Lord's Supper, the end of Jesus' life. Why? My friends, could there be any greater promise for the disciples two days away from their world getting rocked? then heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never. The message is, no matter how chaos this world gets, no matter how disastrous you think your life is, no matter what kind of wretched things happen to you or your friends or your family, you can trust in the promises. You can trust in the great God. You can trust in my words. 
all of these things will pass away, but my words will remain. Psalm 119, O Lord, Your Word is eternal. When He breathes it, my friends, as He wrote the Scriptures, the image was that the Word would be eternal because John chapter 1 says, Who is the Word? Christ is that Word. And so friends, understand this passage from the vantage point of the disciples. That no matter how chaotic our existence would be, we could hold on to this. They'll never lie. They'll never fail. Scripture says they'll never come back void. Look, we don't have to turn to one another. Isn't that awesome? Like you're like, well, well is, aren't relationships great? Yeah, they are. But you know what? Relationships fail me. They do. But you know what? Who never fails me is Christ. His words never fail me. His promises never forsake me. His word never... He's about His purposes. And i got to trust in that. i got to believe in that. So hear this passage as the disciples would have heard it. Your words. They never... will never fade. will never corrupt. They will be forever a stronghold, my friends. And now in verse 34, we see the second part of a three-part challenge to the disciples. He says, first, you can hold the Word. It's a stronghold. It will never fade or fail. But, it's easy to get distracted. Verse 34. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a what? Like a trap, Jesus affirms what we already talked about, surprise and shame. If these things weigh down on you and your heart weighs down, then, my friends, it will come on you unexpectedly like a what? It's not unexpectedly like a feather, you know? Like unexpectedly like a trap. I'm not a hunter, but traps are bad, you know? If you're an animal and you get caught in a trap, nothing good's going to happen, you know? Unless you're going to be put in a zoo, you know what I mean? Like happy feet or something. A trap is bad, right? But in this case, he says, look, you have my word, but it's easy to get distracted. Anyone relate? Dissipation is another way of saying dizziness or self-indulgence from being drunk or a hangover, in other words. Jesus uses a couple examples with that and anxiety to show how our heart gets weighed down. Can I put it to you this way? When we get tired of waiting we turn to a lot of other things besides the Savior. When we get tired of waiting, we turn to things that will selfishly and momentarily fulfill, but never satisfy. And so for some of you in here right now, I've already mentioned it once, reality is, uh, stats tell us that 70 to 80% of males have looked or are struggling with pornography, for some of you males in here, that's your vice. Whenever the stress begins to come and you, be, you get tired of waiting, you get tired of persevering after the cross of Christ, then that's your, that's your deal. That's your fix. That gives you some momentary comfort. There's all kinds of other things. Gossiping, drunkenness, literally some of you in here have a major alcohol problem. You hear Matthias' lot, we don't, I believe that Scripture says that, uh, that we should abstain completely, right? But we definitely believe that drunkenness is a sin. 
Okay? And there's a whole long, longer teaching on that, my friends. Uh, there, there's different personal convictions that even as us as elders feel. But at the end of the day, friends, drunkenness is ungodly and is a sin. Some of you guys are turning to that. Because it provides like some momentary comfort in a bottle. I've already mentioned it, but for others of you, it's just, it's running your mouth. Because it makes you, it like gives you this momentary, like yeah, like I can feel like I'm, I'm over here. And then all the while, your heart is just being pulled and weighed down by what? By shame. By regret. It's anti-gospel. Why? Because the scripture says, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So when we experience, my friends, the shame and the regret... It's anti-gospel. It should lead us instantly to repentance. Mark, are you saying that we'll never struggle or that we'll never sin? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is, my friends, is the, sh- uh, the shame and the regret, as it compiles on your heart, it weighs you down. And so you want to talk about reflecting the glory of God? Are you kidding me? For those of you in here right now, you're experiencing a tremendous amount of shame and, uh, shame and regret. You know how difficult it is to reflect the glory of God in that moment. You don't feel like there's any, you feel like there's no way to get out. You feel like you've got no hope. You feel like you've got no opportunity. Jesus, look, my word, it will never fail, but it's easy to get distracted. My friends, how many of you tonight are distracted? You've gotten tired of waiting. Let me provide you an example. Uh, how many of you guys have ever been to the doctor's office? Perfect. Some of you guys need to go, right? It's like, some of you haven't raised your hands. They, they made those. Modern times. You know, you go, you get shots, you don't get diseases. It's great, right? Now, uh, when, when you're in a doctor's waiting room, and I've, this happened to me several times, you, you sign your name in, right? And you, you're feeling good about things, and you go sit down. And you're expecting to be called in the first five or ten minutes, because that's what always happens at the doctor's office, right? Ten minutes go by, and then you start to look, you, you look at the magazines, right? And you're like, sports, oh, sports Illustrated, this isn't bad, Sports Illustrated's here. Sweet, this doctor's cool, you know? So you get out your Sports Illustrated, another 20 minutes go by. About 30 minutes, your, your tailbone's starting to hurt, you know? Because the chairs in those doctor's offices aren't the most comfy. Can we agree? Right? And so you're, you're starting to get a little antsy, right? All of a sudden, by like minute 50, when you were supposed to be in there, or 50 minutes ago, like you're angry, you know? You're like up, you're, you go up and you talk to the attendant, um, Mark Sigma, did you see my name on here, you know? I have, like I have a scab here, we need to get me in, you know? And you're getting angry, and you're, you know, people, it's getting tense. At an hour, you go in there, and you have this growl, and the doctor's like, hey, are you okay? No, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm angry at you, you know? Now, have you ever been to the post office? That's even better. Because they give you a number. They tease you. Don't they? They, they have the little, like, the spinny thing, you know, and you pull out the number, like, 86, and it's on, like, 42. You're like, what? There's not even 40 people in here. Like, how does this happen? What? You know what? When we get tired of waiting, it's so easy to get bogged down. Now, listen to this. We get angry in a doctor's office. Why? Because we're paying to be there. Like, we're going to pay, a copay at least. Right? To go in and see the doctor who's going to heal us. And so we get angry because we feel like, like, we're supposed to be in there. I'm paying to be here. So we get all flustered. We'll probably have to invest some money in drugs and other things. How is it then when you're sitting in a waiting room that you have done nothing to even deserve to even be sitting in the waiting room? 
How is it that you're already re- reaping the benefits of the one who's, who you're waiting to see here and now in the waiting room? How should you wait at that point? Should it be a little bit different when you're sitting in the waiting room and you have done nothing to deserve to even understand the grace of God, let alone experience it? You see, we get tired of waiting in our life because we're expected something. We're entitled something. What about when we're waiting for something that we don't deserve? How does the waiting room change that? My friends, how many of you tonight are tired of waiting? The shame and the regret and the remorse has weighed down your heart to this place that it's completely distracted you from the gospel. Let me tell you something. Jesus says that my word never fails. Can you remind yourself tonight that you're sitting in a waiting room that you don't deserve to sit in? That you're sitting under the grace of God that you never deserved and didn't do anything to earn and that you could never pay for. How does our waiting change in that moment? The word never fails. It's easy to get distracted. And in verse 36, I love this, an answer of how we're to persevere, be always on the watch and what? And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to to stand before the Son of Man. The Greek rendering here is better. Be always watchful by praying. My word is true. It's easy to get distracted. So what are we to do? Mark says we're to be on alert. Matthew's Gospel says be on guard. Be watching and pray. The Greek word here for pray is deomai. And that word means to plead. For those of you guys that know me at all, you know that the last three months has been a huge prayer journey for me. I've confessed to you that despite all my years in ministry, all my experiences of the gospel and church, that my prayer even this morning was, God, will you teach me how to pray? God, will you teach me how to pray? And so when I hear him say, be watchful and pray, plead, What I hear is not what I've been taught. Because I've been taught to say some rote prayers that kind of, you know, I give God a big bear hug. Instead, when I hear the word plead, the image that I get is the picture of Christ with with His long train behind Him and me just grasping on, holding on, say, Oh God, would You change my heart today? Oh God, would you help me wait today? Oh God, will you just give me a picture that your word never fails? Oh God, would you do that? Just fist clenched, not letting go. Church, we need to learn how to plead. We're great at asking for our case. We're great at sharing the things with Him that we desire and deserve even. When will the church learn how to plead? When will the church be God without you, without your grace, without your help? We will completely fail. We need you. Because it's easy to get tired of waiting, isn't it? It's easy to say, God, you haven't come today and you probably won't come tomorrow so I can just live however I want. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is he is alive today and he's alive tomorrow, my friends. And so I want to encourage you that for those of you in here who are looking for the answer, could it be that tonight you could start praying the prayer, God, will you teach me how to pray? Oh God, will you change my heart? 
Oh God, I will not let go. Oh God, I just desire for you to hear my prayers. Friends, what does that look like for us to plead after Christ that he would completely change our being, that we may be better waiters? And at the end of that verse, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 says this, I come like a thief and blessed is he who stays awake. The only way to stay awake in this world, my friends, is through the prayer and communion of a great Christ. The only way. Can I show you one, one other verse? Put up Acts chapter 4 for me. Acts chapter 4. Listen to this. The apostles have gathered in a house after they prayed. Now the interesting thing about this, uh, th- this word here is it's the exact same word we just looked at. Deomai. So can we interpret it as this? After they pleaded, after they pleaded, the place where they were meeting was what? Was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Why, my friends, are we diminishing the power of pleading to God? Why are we diminishing the the understanding and the power of corporate pleading? You guys need to go back home and read this entire chapter of Acts. They plead together and the meeting place was shaken because God's presence was so strong. And he ends with this in verse 37 of Luke chapter 21. Each day Jesus was teaching the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Real quick, for those of you guys who remember this, you have the Temple Mount here, you have the Kidron Valley that goes down and up to the Mount of Olives. And so every day, this is a short walk, every day he would be preaching in the Temple and then he would go down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives to, to pray and to spend the night and to, and to talk to God, His Father, in verse 38. And all the people came early in the morning to hear Him at the Temple. Last couple days of His life, what is He doing? He's teaching. He's preaching. He's fixing doctrine. He's interested in what people's views of himself are. He wants to change their hearts. And so every day, it'd be easy, like for you and I, like last week of our life, it's like, you know, we're going to be on the Oprah show. We're going to get to spend a million days. We're going to go see the world in the last. No, no, no. In his last days on this earth, my friends, he's teaching and he's preaching and he's fixing doctrine and he retires at night to focus and to pray. In the last days of his life, through the power and the work of his Father, he's preaching, teaching truth. And the truth that you and I need to hear tonight is this, is that his word never fails. That despite the ease to get distracted, my friends, he's called us to plead, to pray, to humble ourselves so that we will not get tired of waiting. So that when He returns, we lift up our heads in what? In confidence. And say, I've been waiting. I've been waiting, oh great God. But Mark, what if it doesn't happen in my lifetime? Then then have I just waited for nothing? Are you kidding me? Have you waited for nothing, my friends? Generation after generation of saints are praising the King of the universe because through the empowerment of Christ, they waited for Him. May we as a church wait for the Lord, His timing, His power, His glory, because His Word never fails. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. I was taught by church to pray, and I learned a lot of bad habits. We'd be ignorant in this moment.
to not pray corporately, wouldn't we? We'd be ignorant in this moment to not admit that there are several of you here right now that are bogged down with a tremendous amount of shame and regret because you got tired of waiting. So here's what we're going to do. As a body, as a church, I'm going to walk us through six different things in this moment to pray for, to plead for. And I'm going to ask for something tonight. Many of you guys may not be comfortable with praying. Let me tell you this. Right now, you have the freedom to pray as you would. For some of you, that may be screaming. For some of you, that may be shouting. For some of you, that may be praying out loud. For some of you, that may be on your face. Right now, corporately, we're going to pray. And so you have an opportunity to pray freely without worry about how a religion will view you. My friends, this isn't about the signs. This is about the Savior. And so let's begin tonight by praying out loud together in the freedom of praying. Let's give thanks to Christ right now that His Word never passes away. Let's just spend some time right now giving Him thanks for His timing and His plan and His sovereignty. Let's just spend some moment right now in an attitude of prayer speaking some of those anxieties that are weighing us down, some of the stresses, some of the sin. Let's just speak those out tonight right now in a way of casting our burdens upon Him. Let's spend some moments right now just giving Him thanks that redemption is near, being brought back by the blood of His Son is close. Let's spend some moments right now pleading that our lives will reflect Him. And my friends, let's cry out tonight and ask Him to give us the strength to not tire in our waiting. Come on, let's cry out to Him. Let's ask that. Let's plead that. God, I thank You that Your Word never fails. I thank You, Lord Jesus, that because of that we can trust in the fact that You're returning, that the disciples heard that promise and that they began to pray, that they responded with a lifestyle that was reflective of Your Son, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that tonight, that through prayer, that through the empowerment of Your Spirit, that our lives will respond to Your return in obedience in the great empowerment of Your Spirit that will reflect Your doxa to this world, O oh God. I pray, Father, for the people in here that are experiencing shame and regrets. God, will You show them that there's no condemnation in Your Son. God, will You heal their hearts? Will You bring them back? Will You redeem them tonight? Oh God, my Father, we will not stop pleading. We will not tire. God, we need Your strength. And we ask You tonight, as a church, as a community, that You will teach us to pray that You'll teach us to desire You, that You'll give us a spirit that just won't let go tonight, God. Will You show us our freedom that's in Your Son, Jesus?